It's time to set aside the superficial. It's time to go deeper. It's time to engage in truth. Here's John Bornchain. Well, everybody, welcome back to Engage in Truth. This is John Bornchain. I'm a senior pastor of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley right here in Colorado Springs. And I'm so excited that you are tuning in because we're continuing in our study of 1 Corinthians. And today we're in chapter 7. Now, there's a, I've dedicated some 20 pages just to the first five verses. So it's going to take us a little bit to get through this because last week, as you know, we were talking about really this very difficult subject. And I, I, I'm proud of you for getting through it. Uh, you know, sexual immorality is not an easy topic. And we've been on that subject now for the past few weeks. If you missed it, please go back to our website at calvaryfountain.com. You can listen to the broadcast there. Uh, you can also watch the, the sermon series on that or take even the sermon notes, share it, and do a Bible study on your own with those materials. And we would encourage you to do that. It's a very serious topic, especially in our culture today. However, it's not unlike what was going on in the Greek culture at that time. So here almost 2,000 years removed, and yet it's a lot of the same things. Nothing new under the sun here. People People are still people. So again, last week, as we talked about sexual immorality, we were convicted about how to stay pure in our marriage relationship between a man and a woman that God had designed it to be. Is it all pointed to the very image of Christ and his church? It's a very serious thing. And how we're, we're to remain pure and undefiled as representatives of Jesus Christ. So today, let's look at the other side of that spectrum of talking about sexual morality. Now, often these type of subjects are avoided. Uh, but I, I'm not at Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley. We're, we're verse-by-verse expository. We're going to go through the tough subjects. And this is a vital one. And, and here in these first five verses, Paul's going to throw his weight around and exhort us to fulfill our sexual desires through a loving, sacrificial relationship with our spouse. Now listen to this. Verse 1. Here's what we read. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Hey, wait a minute, that seems opposite of what I just said. Well, listen to this. These words now concerning, first of all, this is to prepare the reader for Paul's response to a number of questions that were coming in from the church of Corinth. So again, all of this is addressed to a church that was struggling with similar issues that we're struggling with today. This is not dealing with anything going on outside the church predominantly, even though they were a lot of temptation, a lot of things going on in the culture. This is answering their questions about what is God-honoring in sexual fulfillment. So in the first six verses of this letter, Paul's been dealing with sinful struggles in the life of the church in Corinth that he'd heard about through Chloe's people. You go back to chapter 1, verse 11 on that, and perhaps through other sources as well that uh, he had heard probably from a number of sources, but specifically citing Chloe's household and those with her in verse 11 of chapter 1. But now beginning here in chapter 7, verse 1, Paul is going to respond to a whole series of questions that were addressed to him in a letter from the leadership of the church there at Corinth, and, and questions about practical issues like marriage, divorce, singleness, food offered to idols, spiritual gifts, public worship, what happens to our bodies when we die, even a concern about an offering that was to be taken for some believers in Jerusalem who are in poverty. So Paul's going to devote the rest of this letter to answering critical questions. So here, verse 1b, 
Paul then cites a line from this from the letter to these Corinthians. He says it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, what he intends to qualify and correct, it, it felt like Solomon would have sent this comment to Paul across time, space, about a thousand years when he wrote, better to dwell in a corner of a housetop than a house shared with a contentious woman Oh, in Proverbs chapter 21, verse 9. And then he repeats that same theme in Proverbs 25, 24. That's not what Paul's saying here, right? He's not trying to say avoid women at all costs. Uh, that's not what's being stated. He said it's good for a man not to touch a woman. It has nothing to do with a hug or a handshake or any other manifestation of fellowship or friendship in, a, in, a, in a, uh, an amiable, uh, uh, healthy, uh, honoring way, right? we got to make sure that, that any type of touch or contact is done so uh, in, in a correct manner, uh, not something that is uh, done without being invited or allowed in any way. So to touch a woman is a euphemism here, for sexual intercourse. That's, that's what he's talking about. I know I just said that on the radio, but we got to talk about this. this is what Apostle Paul's talking about here. Okay, so that's a euphemism for sex. And so the, the idiom occurs here 10 times in Greek literature, and all of the references except one appear to reference then sexual relations. And you can see this in Genesis 26, 20 verse 6, I should say, Proverbs 6, uh, 29. So consequently, various English versions just drop the euphemism and translate it as sexual relations. If you have the NET or ESV, that's what you'll see there. So the phrase to touch a woman is translated to marry in the NIV because sexual relations were only to occur in the marriage union. So the mindset of the Corinthians went way beyond issues of marriage or even celibacy. Some were promoting abstinence even in the marriage relationship. So the the natural question here is why would the Corinthians not be interested in sex in the context of marriage even? Now we cannot we can't know for certain in that but but the most likely suggestion is that there is this uh, this particular group in the congregation asceticism perhaps is a se- severe self-discipline and avoidance of all forms of indulgence typically for religious reasons and and these particular individuals they believe that the highest plane of spirituality is to forego anything that brings creature comforts even sex food or anything of, of enjoyment of the flesh. So it's it's like punishing yourself. You're punishing the desires of the flesh and to, to master it by way of some mental fortitude through meditation or other means and even withdrawing from anything that would appear to be to bring pleasure to either mind or the body. So while that idea seems to be a bit odd to those of us who live in this sex-saturated society, it, it coincides with the doctrinal beliefs in Corinth. The, the Corinthians adhered to a Greek philosophical dualism that prioritized the spirit over the body. So in chapter 6, verses 12 to 20, the Corinthians had justified sexual immorality because what they did in the body was not as important as what they did in the spirit. Somehow they were breaking the two apart. So therefore, when, when you live in a culture of flagrant disregard for morality, those in religious circles can tend to resort to some extreme opposition, such as asceticism. Okay, so those who esteem the soul can argue that it is best for one to deny as many physical needs as possible, and obviously both of those extremes are unbiblical. So that's why Paul is spending all of this time to clarify this issue and to help us understand that sex is a gift from God to a man and a woman who are in a marital union, in a marriage 
relationship. And then it serves as both a means for procreation and recreation as a bonding agent. Last week we talked about that. The Greek word is glue. It is a gluing agent bringing two pieces together to hold them together, to bond them together, to know each other in a physical way. It is a gift to married couples, man and woman, in marriage union. In verse 2 then, Paul gives us the basic command, continue to have sexual relations with your spouse. Here's what he says. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. So the word nevertheless expresses Paul's disagreement with the proposition of verse 1, where you were to have no contact with a woman, have no relation with her at all, to abstain from any form of pleasure there. Now, Paul, we know, it was, was most likely in this case, not in a marriage union. We don't know all the details there, but he, he does talk about the fact that he is single. He is able then to serve the Lord faithfully in that role. So we'll talk about that here in a bit, maybe not in this particular broadcast, but as we go through chapter seven, we'll get into that uh, of the blessing of singleness. So he's not commanding us here in any way that you can't be happy and be single. Uh, He's just trying to give us some direction here on what a healthy marital couple situation looks like. So again, Paul vehemently disagrees that married couples should abstain from sexual pleasure. Paul is not anti-sex. He's pro-marriage. So this is confirmed by his use of the verb have, uh, which is a euphemism for sexual relations. So in other words, rather than abstaining from these sexual relations as a couple, Paul is, is expecting that husbands and wives continue in normal sexual relations. Moreover, the word have is a present tense command that implies keep. So Paul commands, let each man live sexually with his wife, let each wife live sexually with her husband. So one of the Lord's provisions for sexual immorality is to get married and to enjoy the God-approved pleasure of sex together and frequently, right? To honor one another in this, it's God-honoring marriage is the answer to immorality of all kinds and to flee from any temptation that would dare infringe on that. So Paul continues his exhortation and clarification by explaining that each spouse's sexual responsibilities are to the other in marriage. He then says here in verse 3, let the husband render to his wife the affection due her and likewise also the wife to her husband. So what does that mean? It means what every man hopes it means. That for many men, this is one of the greatest verses in the Bible. It's the duty that we delight in, a responsibility that God gave to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1.28 and to Noah and his wife in Genesis 9.7 and their sons to be fruitful and multiply. It's the one job that we want to spend overtime at. After all, this was the second recorded command that God gave to man. The first was not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil in Genesis chapter 2, 17. And the second involved God making a woman and giving her naked to the man. And he made it, it told this man, telling them they become one flesh, a husband and a wife in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. So this marriage union of a man and woman living in a relationship with God was created for a number of reasons beyond procreation. You see, God established marriage to raise up the next generation to know him. In Malachi chapter 2, verse 15, Deuteronomy 6 and Psalm 78, and to serve as an institution for personal and spiritual development. These issues, you are going to grow more in a marriage relationship than probably any other sphere that you are involved in. Your, your men, women are going to test you like none other. 
right? You are going to learn spiritual maturation in the home and how you relate with your wife, how you minister to her, how you learn how to foot wash, how you, how you learn to be a peacemaker, women, vice versa, right? I mean, your husband is going to challenge you in ways that perhaps nobody else will challenge you. So this is a way where we put that spiritual training to work right in the home. And, and, and as that is cultivated and developed, it makes you stronger, stronger and more able to serve in the community at large. This is their ministry development uh, incubator right there in the home in your relationship as a husband and wife. So, and thirdly, we're to experience the pleasures of a God-honoring union. God is not trying to take away all joy. As we went through Ecclesiastes, you see that God is the one who gives and gives the pleasure to enjoy the things that he gives. He can remove the pleasure from the things that we pursue if it's not done so to his glory. So in this union, God refines men and women with the characteristics of self-sacrifice, leadership, servant-mindedness, devotion, perseverance, wisdom, and love, just to name a few. So in fact, the fruit of the Spirit, as we see Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 to 23, the fruit of the Spirit is often cultivated through the marriage bond. That's where it's developed and refined. So God then taught us through the Apostle Paul's writings that men are to love their wives and be willing to give their lives for them elevating women in the culture, and that women are to respect and honor their husbands, according to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, and Colossians 3, 19. So in both directives for healthy association, we see that God purposely brought together these two unique creations. They're both humanoid, but very different, and that's okay. We should celebrate their uniquenesses, not try to make them equals as far as, as how they think and how they act emotionally and, and how they are physically, right? We, we, we try to challenge testosterone or, or estrogen as those these are bad things. God designed us unique and it's beautiful. And when we build each other up, it is fulfilling a purposely designed social and physical need that the other one would have. God did that on purpose. So in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 22, we see that God put Adam to sleep to take a rib from his side. Now, I put the rib in quotes there to create this woman. I'll explain in a moment. It's because the original text creates a visual that's not, it's, it's even more spectacular. Uh, the word translated as helpmate is not synonymous with an assistant, a servant, a minion, or even a subordinate. Rather, the Hebrew word, azer kenegdo, in all other instances of the Bible, refers to a powerful and extensive aid and support. So other scriptures include Deuteronomy 33, 7 and 29, Exodus 18, 4. So we use the same phrase to discuss the potent interventions and deliverances of God himself. So woman, therefore, was created as a powerful complement and influential companion for man. So the strengths of each person then compensate for the weaknesses of the other. They, together they become something far stronger, more magnificent than either of them was alone. And we see that in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 to 12. So in Genesis chapter 2, the word tesela is used, and it's something more than a rib. It, it actually speaks in other scriptures where that Hebrew word or its variants are used is translated side. So it even is a reference to the sides 
of the Ark of the Covenant. So that implies that the two beings were designed to work and fit together perfectly, not just physically, but in all ways. Did you catch that? Your spouse was designed for you by God. They're a gift to you. So God created Eve in this way to show that woman was equal status in creation to man as was created to complement and in some ways complete man in the integral union of marriage. So woman was created to be beside man, not beneath or above him. This does not speak to the roles of male and female in the home and church, but to the equality of status in the kingdom of God as children of God. And that draws from Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, where we read that there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you were all one in Christ Jesus. So man is no more worthy of salvation, and woman is no less a citizen of God's kingdom. They stand side by side in the eyes of God. Though the man is responsible before God for the state of the home and the church, just as Christ is the head of the church, according to Ephesians 5, 22-33. So, with respect to marriage, God formed man to be incomplete without his wife. It's like an apple that's cut in two. It's not whole unless together. That is why we feel complete with the other in our life most of the time. Now, you may have some of those moments where you don't feel like, I I need that other person. Believe me, you do. God purposed that the two of you are together for a reason. You need to have a different perspective about that person if if they're pushing all the wrong buttons in your life. Chances are it's about you more so than them. When Moses was griping about Israel, God it was just really letting Moses gripe, it seems. And so Moses really seems to come 180 on that. And it's when he's finally willing to sacrifice his own life for these defiant people that it almost seems like that's when he was ready to lead. And I find that often in our prayer life as we're griping about the other, What God is doing is working on us, perhaps even more so than the one that we're griping about. So this is a matter of perspective here. you got to see that person as a gift now, rather than infringing on your freedoms, or or infringing on the joys that you think that you would have, as if the grass is greener on the other side. And believe me, the grass is always greener over the septic tank, right? It's never greener on the other side, like you may think it is. God has a reason for what He is doing. Trust Him in that. So I'm a hopeless romantic. And my wife is perfect for me. She she brings spice and seasoning to my bland entree. You see, so God saw the end from the beginning, according to Isaiah 46.10, and his will cannot be thwarted, according to Isaiah 14.27 and Job 42.2. And our days were numbered and written before they ever began, according to Psalm 139 and Jeremiah chapter 1. So I know then, without a doubt, that my wife was perfectly designed by God for me. And gentlemen, your wife was crafted by God for you in the same manner. So God knew what he was doing when he made a woman for the man, for Adam to be joined together with Eve in marriage. And I know how driven a man can be. I mean, he, he will give up his life just to conquer and reach the summit of the highest mountain or journey past the point of no return to voyage to the depths of the sea. A man will sacrifice all for a mission and can completely shut off everything else to venture through the impossible. Well, this is why God gave us women. 
After God had finished all that he had created, he reserved his final creation to make the most complex, ever-changing, grand adventure man will ever know. Woman is the most desirous of his soul, the most alluring to his passions, the greatest challenge, the highest mountain, the lowest valley, the deepest water, the endless palette of color, the influence of the greatest creativity, the drive of his lifeblood, the focus of his will, the revolution of his mind, the sensation of a thousand senses all wrapped into one beautiful little package that gives no end to the quest for the answer. Oh, the endless why. (laughs) We will venture on as though a cosmic answer awaits to explain that which confounds us, the woman. So to understand a woman would be the equivalent of understanding the universe itself. So to top it off, there are no two women alike. You can spend all your years completely invested into the exploration of what defines her and never fully know every detail. There always will be something new that awaits. So your adventure is unique to you. So within each woman is a fountain that will often erupt, filled with history, hurts, insecurities, and the real man learns to tend to each one with compassion, discernment, and understanding. For, for you only yield what you're willing to invest. And so the more onion layers, if you will, to her mind and soul that you're willing to peel back, the more questions and opportunities you're going to have. So a sequoia tree can have up to 3,000 rings in its massive trunk, each filled with traces, unspoken and unwritten stories of drought and rains and fires, insects, trauma, and more. But through it all, the tree has endured, has weathered the years, the trials and tribulations. Well, (laughs) a woman is like a tree with endless rings. If you are privileged to go deeper into the core, there you will find untold treasures that will lead to a lifelong union that is able to withstand the storms of life. But this place of vulnerability for her requires great responsibility for the man. He, He must protect what he finds there, and then he will be able to venture further into the realm of the unexplored adventure reserved for the two of them in the embrace of God. So before I get too carried away here, I I want us to notice a number of things. Number one, Paul begins by addressing husbands. He he says it is the husband's duty to fulfill his wife. Now, some of you husbands are saying, that's impossible. I I can't fulfill everything that my wife wants. It it sounds like something that's, it's an improbability, but hold your horses here. Paul begins with husband's because we're the ones who are ultimately responsible for the sexual relationship. You see, we're the spiritual leaders, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, and Ephesians 5, 23. So husbands here, through Paul, he indicates that you're to fulfill or render to your wife the affection that is due her. This doesn't just mean sex. It means finding out what she needs, what and when she needs it, and how she needs it. Of course, I realize that you don't have a clue as to how to do this. After all, she's a woman and one of the greatest mysteries in the known universe. <laughs> but that's where communication comes in. You're responsible for facilitating communication with your wife. That means that when you learn how to use words, body language, or acts of service— This takes time and intentionality. Now, ladies, this means that you have to tell your husband how he can minister to you. If you do not communicate and respond to him well, he's going to become disillusioned and frustrated. So secondly, Paul begins with husbands because they often neglect this command. I've known slightly more men on this 
who've struggled to fulfill their duty rather than vice versa. So a big, big misnomer out there is that women are the ones who always have a headache. And that's not always true. Uh, some men are too tired for romance. And yet even for sex, they're, they're too tired for the conversation, for the journey. They just want to get to the destination. Many men then become addicted to pornography, which takes away from a husband's sexual drive for his wife and makes her feel used when they're intimate. Romance is an investment of time. And most men just become lazy and they fail to fulfill their duty to their wife. So furthermore, when you deprive your wife of romance, she's feeling like you don't find her attractive. And so men... You need to take a page out of the book of Song of Solomon, okay? You really, if you, if you really care about your spouse being satisfied, then you must meet her emotional need and her God-given design to be pursued. She wants to be wanted. Chase her. Enjoy the journey. Talk or write poetically to her. Just watch how her countenance will change. Now, I, I, let me just try to end here. I want to encourage you here with this in just the final minute I have with you. Let's take a page out of the Song of Solomon on this. Here's what we read. If we just go to Song of Solomon's chapter, chapters 1 to 2, here's what we read. I'll just give you a few brief excerpts in our final minute. If you do not know, O fairest among women, I have compared you, my love, to my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with chains of gold. Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes, to which she replies. Behold, you are handsome, my beloved. Yes, pleasant. Also, our bed is green. The beams of our houses are cedars and, and our rafts of fir, our rafters of fir. I, I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys like a lily among thorns. So is my love among the daughters, like an apple tree among the trees of the woods. So is my beloved among the sons. I sat down in his shade. And his great delight and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house and his banner was over me as love. Sustain me with cakes of raisins, re refresh me with apples, for I am lovesick. His left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the does of the field. Do not stir or nor awaken our love until it is pleasing or until it pleases. The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, he stands behind our wall. He is looking through the windows, gazing through the lattice. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, turn my beloved and be like a gazelle or a young stag upon the mountains of Bethar. Okay, so it really gets good in Song of Solomon chapter 4. And you really need to read that together. This is poetry of two lovers, a husband and a wife, in love, expressing their love through romantic interludes. And this takes work. Yes, man, it takes work, ladies and gentlemen. But it doesn't have to take the time that, that should be diffusing or disillusioning, but rather time that's investing in one another. It doesn't have to, to, to you know, take away the time of doing all the other things that, that require of you as being a husband and wife, all the duties and responsibilities that are going on. I know you're tired at the end of the day, but look, gentlemen, if you touch your heart and you step up spiritually, the rest will follow and you will learn to fully satisfy your wife. Okay, we're just getting started. We've got a lot to cover in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I hope you've been encouraged. I really want you to be encouraged, especially in your marriage. We want strong marriages out there. This is, this is where strong families come from. This is where a strong society comes from. A strong church 
We're the next generation of missionaries and servant leaders, the next generation of pastors and teachers all come from this, the family. It needs to be strong for Jesus. And so I pray that you're encouraged. Please go to learn more about our ministry at Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley. You can learn more at calvaryfountain.com. Calvaryfountain.com. Services are at 8 and 10 a.m. on Sundays. We'd love to see you there. God bless you.